Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. Real treat this week. We will be joined shortly by my dear friend, David Azra. David is assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale College's Washington, D.C. campus, their graduate school of government. But before then, I want to revisit what we were talking about at the end of last week's episode with our friend Ann Coulter. We were talking a little bit. Ann obviously was a massive Trump supporter in 2016. She has become a large Trump critic, I think would be an understatement. We were talking in that final segment of that podcast about the emerging Trump versus DeSantis fight in 2024, if indeed that happens. And I put my cards on the table and said that from my vantage point, if it comes to that, and it is very much an open question as to whether it will come to that, I am certainly on Team DeSantis. Well, this week, you know, as we're recording, The New Yorker has a very long essay out here. It's kind of humorous at times because the writer, to put it mildly, is not a fan of Governor DeSantis's, and there is a lot of comical hate speech in there. But the title of this New Yorker essay written by someone I've never heard of by the name of Dexter Filkins, the title is, quote, Can Ron DeSantis Displace Donald Trump as the GOP's Combatant in Chief? And then the subtitle is a fervent opponent of mass mandates and woke ideology. The Florida governor channels the same rage as the former president, but with greater discipline. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. And again, like this article is written by a clear, you know, liberal leaning media hack. There's one line that's this is a literal quote from the article, quote, it helped DeSantis that sometimes he was right. Close quote. That's literally the line. So this is not written by a neutral observer, let alone someone who is sympathetic to our side here. But the fact that The New Yorker is writing an article like this before anyone has declared for the presidency, before Donald Trump has, before Ron DeSantis has, I think does indicate that large swaths of the left are really, really terrified of the governor of Florida. And as a Floridian, as someone who moved here in part for Governor Sanders' wonderful statesmanship, the fact that he, I think, has handled the COVID issue perhaps more than any other issue, better than any of his other 49 governors. I think they're right to be scared of him because he's going to win this fall here in Florida. Florida used to be a swing state, of course, for decades and decades. It was maybe the most iconic swing state in the country. Y'all who are you know over the age of 25 will remember the 2000 presidential election, obviously, with the hanging chads and, you know, a 500 to 600 vote margin that ultimately gave George W. Bush the presidency down here in the in, in the Sunshine State. So he has come in in 2018. He very narrowly beat Andrew Gillum, and he's probably going to win this fall by I would conservatively estimate eight to 10 points. Really, 10 to 12 points is, is probably what I am ballparking right now. His approval ratings from independents, from the Hispanic community here, are really off the charts. And what's remarkable is that they are off the charts 
but he has not moderated. There are maybe a couple of issues that you can point out. There have been, there, there's been some environmental issues maybe where he has kind of hinted at the center. But, you know, bear in mind, of course, Florida has more coastline than quite possibly any other, any other state in the country except for Alaska. So environmental issues tend to play down here a little bit more than in, in many other states. But he has done so by standing up for the proposition that he is going to defend his people. That to borrow the rhetoric that we have used on previous podcasts here, and this is a line that our guest David Asrad actually in fact coined, and then I have kind of taken off with myself, although I always try to give David attribution, I think Governor Sanders governs with a sense of who his friends and who his enemies are. And in defying the COVID tyranny, in defying kind of the the ability for private sector corporations to just impose vax mandates at will, recall down here in Florida, he passed a law. He issued an order, I should say, that precluded private businesses from implementing mandates as far as their employees that had to have the vax. Now, a lot of more classical liberal types said, oh, oh, every private sector should decide. No, but what Governor DeSantis understood, and he understood this better than probably any other politician in America, he understood that his people, Republicans, conservatives, you know, people up in the panhandle and so forth, We're going to have the vax mandate issue used against them like a club, like a battering ram to try to subjugate them out of public facing life. So he decided to get in there and do something about it. So anyway, I would encourage the listeners podcast to check out this essay at The New Yorker. It's an interesting read. Again, is written by someone who is not particularly favorable to our side of the aisle, but it really does indicate just how scared they am of him. I really do think they should be scared of him. Again, personally, if I were just doubling down on my cards on the table here, I would prefer that Donald Trump accept his status as a kingmaker, bow out, and that Governor DeSantis becomes the next president of the United States. We will see. My prediction, nonetheless, is that nothing less than a heart attack can prevent Donald Trump from running for president again. But let's take it to a quick break. On the other side, we're going to bring on David Azaret. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, I'm just thrilled to be joined this week by someone I consider a close personal friend. And that, of course, is David Azra. David is assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale College's D.C. Van Andel Graduate School of Government. So, David, thank you so much for joining us this week. Nice to be with you, Josh. Yes, of course. Long overdue, perhaps. So, David, let's start off on a bit more of a personal note before kind of getting into the substance. So you are a smarter man than me in perhaps many ways. But one of the many reasons that I think you're smarter than me is that you're not on Twitter. So for those people who are perhaps slightly (laughs) less online, the youngins who are listening to the podcast, who are you? Why don't you kind of give us a little brief background about yourself? I'm uh, I'm originally from Montreal. Uh, both of my parents are immigrants. My mother is from uh, Brittany in northwestern France. My father is a Sephardic Jew from Morocco. Uh, I grew up there. His mother tongue is Arabic. 
They then all went to Israel, where he served in the army, lived for a few years, and then he moved to Montreal. So my parents immigrated independently of one another to Canada, where I was born and raised and grew up. And uh, I grew up with, a, a, I think, a different kind of love for America than I think Americans are used to hearing. That, you know, I find that Americans sell their son country short by reducing it to the American dream. By being a bit too enamored by people who come from, uh, I think the technical term is shithole countries, I, I believe is, is how we refer to them, and land here, you know, and are impressed, and they work hard, and their kids go to college. And I think that's very good, but honestly, you can do that in Belgium, and you can do that in Canada. What I always liked about America uh, is that I just thought it was kind of a badass country. I, I thought that Americans did bold dangerous, manly things that many of them didn't wear helmets on their motorcycles when we would, you know, vacation in the U.S. You guys had the temerity to not only put a man on the moon, but to decide to bring him back. Uh, you won some great wars. The Western is really the, you know, uh, is the, you know, is the national genre. And it's about, you know, one man taking justice into his own hands and dispensing it in a lawless place. And so I moved to the U.S. at first to do a Ph.D. in uh, political philosophy. I studied with Tom West, one of the great scholars of the American founding and one of the great living Straussians, who's now a colleague at Hillsdale. And uh, I was lucky enough to land in Texas. And so, my, my you know, we had vacation in the U.S. many times and I grew up watching American TV. But my first introduction to living in America was Texas. Now, Admittedly, if you ask Texans, Dallas is not really Texas, they might tell you. You got to go to Fort Worth for that. But it was good to land in a really uh, red part of the country, nevertheless. And uh, I grew to like the country more, and I, I've been here ever since. I then moved to D.C. I worked in think tanks. Uh, and then I was lucky enough about uh, two and a half years ago to leave. I was at the Heritage Foundation for a while and to come to Hillsdale, which is really... Uh, one of the very few uh, morally and intellectually serious universities left in America. No, I think your story is actually important to get out there because one of the things that I see in you is constantly trying to push Americans and push conservatives in particular to be better, to be more forceful in their defense of their country, of, of, of our country. And it's interesting that you come obviously from by birth and non-American background. And I, th I think your point of view is very much colored by that. So that's kind of what I want to get out there. But one thing that I closely associate with you, David, and I think you and I kind of very similarly track in this regard, is your repeated calls for a more forceful, vigorous, muscular, the word that you just use actually is manly, a more manly form of, of conservatism. What do you mean by that? What is different about what you're proposing than the way that you think it's been done over the past 20, 30, 40, however many years you want to go back? Yeah, um, well... You know, I, I, I think, first of all, what I'm saying is not original. I, I, there has always been this current in conservatism. I, I didn't invent this. You know, one person I greatly admire is Pat Buchanan. Um, of course, he's been slandered as an anti-Semite and as a racist, but that's what they do with everyone. And uh, I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I've really learned a lot um, from his writings. Uh, and there have been, I mean, to me, this is in the American DNA. It's in, I mean, Sam Adams, for example, at the time of the founding, 
you know, the, the great risks they took on taking on the red coast. So this is not, I'm not some pipsqueak Canadian coming to America and discovering the need to be bolder and manlier. I'm tapping into an earlier tradition that regrettably in recent decades, I think has not been the mainstream one for the main reason that most professional conservatives and Republicans live in big cities and aspire to fit in with the elites. They want the New York Times to say good things about them, or at least to not say bad things about them. And if they themselves didn't go to Harvard, they sure as hell would like their kids to go to Harvard, or at least to Georgetown Prep here in D.C. And as a result, they, you know, that places very serious limits on what you're allowed to say if you want to get invited to cocktail parties in Georgetown or on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or, you know, in Silicon Valley. And I think that there are uh, the regime today is the ruling class is quite rotten. They peddle an unbelievable amount of lies that offend me, first of all, because they're not true. And also because they do great harm to America and Americans. And I feel that uh, people who are in the public square, who claim to be conservatives, really have a duty to call out these lies, to speak on behalf of the aspects of Americanism in America that everyone else craps all over. And that I understand that some people can't do that because I don't think there's any value in martyrdom in getting fired, called a racist on the internet and your life is over. But if you've got some form of institutional backing, like I'm lucky enough to have at Hillsdale, or you know, if you're from a really safe district, I think you owe it to the American people to call out some of these lies to be a bit more defiant. Uh, I am aware that manliness can become reckless. So I'm not a fan of, you know, storming in and shooting everything and blowing everything up. I don't think that advances the cause. But there are uh, sometimes and on some issues and at the right moment where I think we really have a duty to stand up to them and to not let ourselves be intimidated by these people. Because honestly, they're not that impressive. They may be well credentialed, but they're not that smart. Uh, they really haven't excelled at much, and I don't see why we should be impressed by them. So, so I just want a more assertive and defiant conservatism uh, that uh, defends the best parts of America and refuses to bend the knee before the lies and the pieties of the ruling class. Yeah, I really could not have said it better myself. And you know, there's one particular line that really comes or, you know, really resonates with me. And I've used it repeatedly over the past couple of years. So back in the summer of 2020, the American conservative put together this symposium entitled What is American Conservatism? And in your essay for that symposium, which was entitled, quote, American conservatism is fiddling while Rome burns. You had this very provocative line. And again, I, I, I've Borrowed it myself. Hopefully I've, I've given you enough su or sufficient credit. But the line is, quote, the right must be comfortable wielding the levers of state power, and it should emulate the left and using them to reward friends and punish enemies within, within the confines of the rule of law. So break that down for us. What exactly did you mean by that, first of all? And second of all, what do you say in response to those on our own purported side who would hear it phrased quite like that and would just accuse you of being kind of a Schmidtian fascist? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the qualifier within the confines of the rule of law is an important one. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we arrest political opponents. I'm not suggesting that we stick the IRS on your neighbor who voted in a way that you didn't like in an election. We have laws in America. 
But I am suggesting two things. One is that we get over this. Look, there's something admirable about the hostility to big government on the right. Uh, you know, pretty much all of the 20th century has been unconstitutional. Uh, not all of it, but pretty much all of it. Most major pieces of legislation, Supreme Court decisions have taken us far beyond what the founders envisaged, what limited constitutional republicanism would mandate. So I do appreciate the spirited conservative and libertarian refusal to go along with it. That said, you know, you get to a point where almost 90 years after the New Deal, you got to say, you know, big government is here to stay. And uh, it's not enough to say, well, I refuse to compromise myself by getting involved with it. No, you got to know how to govern. Uh, this thing is here. It is around. You may wish it were not. You got to know how to govern. And once you're in power, I just think that, you know, I want us to look at the lay of the land, understand that this is not normal politics. The left is utterly hysterical. There is real malice that I feel the elites have towards ordinary Americans that goes well beyond, you know, I disagree with you spiritedly on guns and abortion. Uh, and that we should be directing honor and funds, again, within the confines of the rule of law, to institutions and parts of the country that are allied with us. And we should be humiliating and defunding institutions that undermine the common good. I mean, how many red state governors are not touching the budgets of their universities? I mean, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I'm like everyone else, I like Governor DeSantis. And the guy has not been in office for that long, and he's done a lot. But I think that that's an area that's ripe in Florida. And then to show the other states how to do it. Why should we keep on funding these utterly worthless, corrupt departments of gender studies, race studies, anything with studies? Defund them. Show that we can use power. And then, you know, redirect the money, look, maybe to the hard sciences that have not been wokeified. I don't know that they are friends at this point, but I mean, look, it is good to have to be producing more real engineers. That is part of our comparative advantage as a nation. So in that sense, it helps the nation. So I just mean to kind of overcome this reflexive, outdated, and rather mindless hostility to govern, which is unbecoming of serious statesmen. If you want to smoke your pipe and read von Mises in the woods, <laughs> that's fine. But if you're in the public square, you're in DC, you're running for office, you should know what to do once you arrive in office. Know how to wield power. Which, by the way, you know, it has been one of the disappointments with the Trump administration that, you know, they were not very good at governing. You can make an allowance for the fact that the media was after them, the courts, the deep state, that he had a hard time putting together a cabinet. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I guess I put it this way. One of the reasons I won't give up on the country is I really don't think that our side has given us its best shot yet. Um, we, we have not really been. Uh, I mean, DeSantis gives you an inkling of what is possible. And, you know, I think he's done good stuff, but let's be honest, he, he hasn't even begun to do the kind of really exciting, bold things a red governor should be doing. Look, I mean, I think he's been the most transformative conservative elected official in the country right now. Unfortunately, that's not really saying a whole lot, to your point. Um, but uh, look, I mean, like the way, you know, you mentioned Von Mises, the way that I've said it over and over again, at least in private, I don't know about how publicly is, you know, all this donor money over the past decades that gets sunk into these eye pencil seminar readings, right? I mean, where we kind of just wax, where we wax, where we wax poetic about the great virtue of how the pencil is manufactured and wealth of nations fashion. I mean, where are the receipts for that? What do we 
have to show for that. But let's actually take it to a quick commercial break because we're running up against a, a stop here. But we're with David Azarad. Hope you stay with us. We will be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. So we're with the great David Azrad this week. So David, one thing that you mentioned, not related to iPencil actually, that I did want to follow up on is you mentioned the universities and the gender studies departments in particular. And one thing that I just immediately thought of there, you you recently came back from Hungary. You spoke at CPAC Budapest. Uh, I, I was going to be there, had a conflict in DC, unfortunately, but I was recently there myself back in February. Uh, Prime Minister Orban has basically done this, if I'm not mistaken. He has effectively outlawed any, any dime of taxpayer money going to the gender ideologues and probably various other ideologues in the higher education system. What did you see in Hungary? Because this uh, this topic is getting a lot of play here. You had a very provocative CPAC speech that, that I would commend to the listeners. But what did you see there and what lessons do you think American conservatives can take from that? I was in Budapest for four days. Uh, I don't speak the language. Uh, I know very little about the country's histories, mores, and I, I have not studied the Orban government carefully. So these are important disclaimers. Here's why I think Hungary is important for the right. It's not that this little country of 10 million people landlocked in Central Europe provides some sort of a blueprint for America. You know, I, I would caution the right against making Hungary into our Sweden you know, a faraway little country that we romanticize and idealize. That being said, it's so important for us to have concrete examples of nations, or in the case of Florida, states, implementing good policies and standing up to the fanatics on the other side. Because, you know, one problem we have on the right is that we have our principles, we have our theories, our books, our abstractions, and we have our nostalgia our memories of how good it used to be. But we don't have many wins. We don't have many scalps. We don't have many concrete instances of pointing to something and saying, yes, this is working. And so Hungary has its shortcomings. Orban is not perfect. But, you know, here is a country that is unabashedly putting the well-being of Hungarians front and center. Here is a country that sees the centrality of the family and the problem of declining fertility rates. You know, I, I'll give you a little anecdote. I don't know if you remember this. When I landed at the airport, what do you call these things? You know, these, these uh, tunnels they move around to get you from the plane to the airport. This is where my English, uh, les passerelles, the, these passenger things, you know? Yep, I know what you're talking about. Apologies for the, the bad English. <laughs> and they, they had a, an ad campaign in French, Italian, Spanish, Hungarian, English that said, Hungary family friendly. And I thought, wow, like this is how they're greeting foreigners. You know, uh, maybe propriety prevents me from saying what our ad campaign would be in the U.S. if the government, the federal government decided to greet foreigners, especially in the holy month of June now, in which we celebrate gay pride. Uh, what we would be saying that the U.S. is friendly to, it's most definitely not families. 
So, you know, a, a lot of people w- will point to the limitations of some of Hungary's policies. And I think these are good conversations to have, but it's just so good on the right to have inspiring examples. That's why to go back to DeSantis and bring it back to the U.S., I want them to do more because I want them to inspire other governors in red states and to kind of create some good competition about who can be, you know, as the kids would say, more base than the other. So, first of all, when I was in there in Budapest in February, I, I had I had the same reaction as you did to those family first or, or or hungry family signs all over the airport there. I mean, it's in all these languages. It's really incredible. I mean, that literally is your first exposure to the country. It's really quite remarkable. But one thing I remember when I was there because I I actually met Orban and you know he's been very vocal in describing his government as quote unquote an illiberal democracy, which I think makes a lot of people you know the hairs in the back of their neck to stand up in hysteria. But there's kind of an ongoing debate among conservatives right now in the U.S. about what America's founding was. And you know you've mentioned American founding numerous times now. You studied under Tom West. You're 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 about as knowledgeable on the American founding as most people that I know. You had this interesting essay in Claremont's American Mind Journal a couple of years ago where you referred to uh, liberalism's uh, genetic predisposition, if I, if, I, if I remember correctly here. And I th- if I understand what you were doing correctly, you were trying to kind of weave a middle ground between Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed and, you know, like the Jonah Goldberg miracle. So talk, talk us through that. What, what is your read on the American founding and how does it relate to liberalism and so forth? Yeah, let me just say one quick thing on Hungary. I think it is unfortunate that Orban used that word illiberal democracy to speak of his country, because I think Hungary is quite liberal. It has religious freedom. It has free speech. It has property rights. It has the separation of church and state. It's not exactly the regime we had at the founding, but it is a liberal democracy. Now, I know what he meant by liberalism. He meant liberalism in the way that it's used by its critics to refer to some kind of libertarianism on steroids, a regime that that prioritizes radical individual autonomy at all costs, that is hostile to nation, church, family, authority, and community. That's what he meant by it. I I do think it was an unfortunate choice uh, of terms. Turning to the U.S., yes, I reject the proposition that, uh, you know, Drag Queen Story Hour was baked into the founding cake. Either that this is what they intended, which is utter nonsense, or that it is a necessary working out of their principles. You know, this is an old argument, by the way. You know, you find a version of it, not so much with the Drag Queen Story Hour, but that basically the founders spoke of equality and liberty. And this leads to egalitarianism and license. Um, it's in uh, Judge Bork's uh, Slouching Towards Gomorrah. It's in Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. Uh, I mean, this is an old argument. And I, I reject it for two reasons. Uh, one is I just don't believe that there are iron laws of necessity in politics. There's too much contingency and choice to say that once you posit this, the following must happen over the course of the next 200 years. Um, I I do recognize that a regime founded on the idea of equality, rights, and liberty will, as I put it, have a genetic predisposition, be more likely to be seduced by people long who come and say, hey, I want to give you more rights. I want to give you more freedoms, for example, certain sexual freedoms that would not have been countenanced under the uh, the founders. I want to make you more equal, i.e. take it in a more leveling direction. 
But I don't see why we need to, if you recognize that, why you need to conclude that we're fated to be, con to be convinced by these arguments. So I, I actually think that uh, the founding is liberal, but I do not take liberalism to mean modern liberalism, uh, radical individual, individualism, uh, Lockeanism on steroids, or a form of libertarianism. I, I, I think that liberalism is actually uh, a much more moderate and reasonable uh, philosophy than it gets credit for. So what is the difference between conservatism and liberalism then? I mean, if the American founding is, a, is, is effectively a moderately or more muscularly liberal founding, what, what work is conservatism actually doing then? Well, I mean, I, 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 I can't believe I'm about to quote George Will, uh, you know, forgive me, father, but uh, <laughs> it, he did have some thoughtful things to say in the past before he went full libertarian. But if, and this is the key if, I want to emphasize this for your listeners. If you define liberalism properly, i.e. not libertarianism, not all rights, no duties, not radical individual autonomy, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying the founding was liberal and conservatism aims to conserve, protect, defend, improve in some areas the liberalism of the founding. Uh, but again, everything hinges on that word. Now, you know, I, I will concede that at this point, you know, you're really mounting. Uh, it's it's to try to reclaim the word liberalism at this point is is a difficult task, because liberalism has a lot of enemies, and a lot of libertarians who claim its mantle and defend it as libertarianism. And so I, I realize I'm part of a minority camp of people who like liberalism and don't think it's libertarianism. Right. And the difficulty in our current politics is not just that liberalism is like almost an impossible term to recover. I, I think it's a, it's a live debate between people on the right, how relevant of a term, quote unquote, conservatism is. Um, and, you know, I we had Yoram Hazoni on the podcast recently. Yoram's a dear friend of mine, and I really appreciate everything that he's doing, certainly, as far as trying to recover a truer conception of conservatism. But a lot of folks on, on the right now, I'm thinking of folks like Chris Rufo, activists like that, you know, it, it, it's almost like a right wing Leninism. And I, I, I don't want to mischaracterize Chris. Um, and that's a, that's a bit more of a Steve Bannon associated term in particular here. But it is kind of more of like, um, you know, it, it, it is certainly a wider array of means that are necessary to achieve our ends. I think you and I would probably be on the same page on that. But well, first of all, let me get your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that liberalism, again, properly understood has within it resources to fend off and fight off the woke left and the crazies. I mean, let me give you a good example. Uh, you're, you're a lawyer, so you, you should know this. Um, obscenity is not protected as speech under the First Amendment. Um, if you look at Locke, the so-called father of liberalism, in his letter concerning toleration, he says that the magistrate, i.e. the government, has a duty to ban any doctrines that undermine the common good or are adverse to good morals. He doesn't say he may do so. He says he must do so. Now, think of what you could do with that power. I mean, honestly, if you wanted to read it broadly, you pretty much could ban every movie, television show, and song made in the past 60 years. I'm slightly exaggerating, but you get my drift. So if you, if you as both the founders and Locke recognized, 
Obscenity is not speech. Things that undermine the good morals necessary for the preservation of society should not be tolerated. This suggests that this kind of, you know, neutral liberalism, you know, this kind of, I guess, liberalism before Rawls that we're supposed to believe was the founder's liberalism. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, there's, there's liberalism in, in some regards is neutral. It gives you freedom to kind of live your life with, a, you know, pick where you want to live, what you want to do, how you want to worship God. But then there's an awful lot of things it forbids. It's just we are choosing not to use these powers, in part because of the libertarian influence on the right, in part because we don't know how to govern, in part because if we were to do so, the left and the media would go apoplectic and it would take real spine to start to ban certain things. But I don't think you need to import a foreign tradition to go after pretty much anything that ails America today. You could just recover the, you know, to tie back to what we started off talking about, the assertive, manly, bold, and responsible liberalism of the founding. I'm actually really happy you mentioned John Locke. So I was playing golf this past fall when a friend texted me, he was like, have you read this? And it was a link to John Locke's commentary on the fundamental constitutions of Carolina from 1669. And I I started skimming it and it's like, it's a profoundly based document, the way that the kids on the street use the word base these days. So I've actually been kind of waiting for someone to write the based case for John Locke as an essay. Maybe maybe you could do it if no one else does it here. But we're running a little short on time, so I want to kind of bring this thing full circle, as you alluded to at the end of your answer there as well here. So let's bring it back to the present. So the founding, we, we, we've discussed that, but let's, make, let's bring it back to the present and, and the tangible here. So one phrase, you know, in our circles that gets tossed around a lot We've discussed on this podcast with some of our prior guests, including our mutual friend Ryan Williams, Ali Beth Stuckey was talking about it. It's this phrase, you have to know what time it is. And as the case may be, if I'm not mistaken, you gave a recent lecture on this precise topic for the American Moments Group, which is a group in Washington, D.C. that I'm proud to be on the advisory board of that basically trains kind of future right-wing crusaders and Senate offices, the administrative state and so forth here. So you give a lecture entitled, What Time Is It? So what time is it? You know, th- this is a line that our friend Dave Raboy uh, came up with, and, and I was telling the Hungarians about it, and, and they claim that it's an expression in Hungarian, which would make sense because Dave is Hungarian. But, you know, it's usually meant to, when you say, like, this dude has no idea what time it is, it's meant to designate usually kind of a Reagan LARPing boomer <laughs> who thinks that, you know, we're just one school choice bill away from saving America and that all is well and we're just going to cut taxes. It's meant to suggest that someone doesn't realize how bad it is today. So I, I, I'm a partisan of knowing what time it is, i.e. of confronting the magnitude of the task before us. You know, virtually every institutional sec- sector in America is either sincerely woke and anti-American, or at least afraid of the wokies and refuses to challenge them. We have very serious demographic problems. We have very serious social problems. You know, we're the largest producers and consumers of pornography in the world. Uh, One in three Americans is obese. I mean, I, I, I think we need to own up to all that's wrong in the country. However, Here's where I part ways with some of my friends who know what time it is. I think we need to resist swallowing the black pill of despair. I I think it is un-American and also foolish to give up at this point, in part for the reason I brought up with you that I really don't think 
we've tried everything. I think we're only now starting to wake up. Like what DeSantis did to Disney is so small and everyone got so excited, but it opens up possibilities. Think of what more could be done. I also think, as I mentioned to you, that honestly, I'm not very impressed by our room class. These people are not that smart. I mean, look at vegetable lasagna in the White House right now and our first affirmative <laughs> uh, action vice president by his side. Look at their handling of the country. I mean, does this seem to you to be kind of ruthless, you know, Stalin types who will execute political enemies? They're dumb. They're slow witted. They're not that impressive. And I think that honestly, at this point, Everything is in place for someone to mobilize, harness, deepen, and weaponize the backlash. Americans are ready for it because the other side has overplayed its hand. You know, I'll give you a small example. They so had the upper hand on race for a long time. Right? We were, quote unquote, the racists. They were the good guys who stood with Emmett Till and the nice actors in Mississippi Burning. And look at what they've done in recent years. They've basically demonized the police, deified George Floyd and said, we're going to side with black criminals over law-abiding American citizens. The American people are not with them. We just need someone to come along and say, enough, you're crazy. We refuse to go along with this. It takes cojones to do that, but there are these wide openings to harness the discontent of the people and to push back hard. So I think we should know what time it is, but it is un-American to give up on America Right now, or for that matter, ever. And I'd, I'd put it to your listeners this way. You mean to tell me that we beat the Redcoats, we beat the Wehrmacht, we survived our civil war, we beat the commies, and we're going to lose our country to Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke? <laughs> uh, it, it's so shameful, I refuse to even contemplate the, 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 the possibility. Well, God bless you, because I always encourage my friends to resist the black pill as well. And I have to add here, before we close out, our first vegetable lasagna president with the first affirmative action vice president is quite the term right there i so it, josh because because i'm not on twitter you're, you're you can use it have at it i i probably will take you up on that my friend but david Isred, this is a real pleasure thank you so much for joining us this week thanks josh this was fun As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So that was David Azrad talking to us about how this country has done so much good. We have defeated the Redcoats, as he said. We have won World War One, World War II. We have been the most successful country in modern history. And the, in David's words, the idea that we're going to lose to that, the, the idea that we will lose to these losers is totally nonsensical. And I totally agree with him. Where I think Dave and I would also agree, though, is that the remedy for not losing to these losers is to grow a spine as far as political statesmanship and the actual art of politics is concerned. So in our main time, I want to relay a very brief personal anecdote. So I just got back from five days up in New York 
I was going around the city, did a lot of walking around the city, which, by the way, I have to say, New York City feels very much like it's back. So, you know, obviously, we discussed in previous episodes, Eric Adams, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, and the crime that is there. I'm sure that is still the case. I didn't personally see any muggings, thank goodness. But the city itself, nonetheless, feels alive. So good in that sense that they have gotten over COVID tyranny, the vax nonsense to an extent. But we were walking around on Sunday morning, and... I have to say that I was in the Chelsea market and I tweeted about this and my God, I got railroaded for this tweet worse than I've gotten railroaded in years. There was an advertisement for a drag brunch, which is, I guess, whatever. I mean, drag brunches have been around for a long time, I'm told. But what stood out to me was that this drag brunch was hosted by a drag queen by the name of, quote, Cherry Poppins. Now, to spell out the euphemistic reference for you this drag queen is literally there to help people pop cherries put another way this drag queen is there to help sexualize children to help people lose their virginity and a lot of people on twitter were like oh what are you talking about here this is not grooming this has nothing to do with children well it's literally right there in the name and this relates to what david is talking about there because there are a lot of people on our side who will see something like this and understandably just react and say Oh, Josh, what do you care? Just don't go there. Don't take your kids there. Don't take your partner there. Don't take your parents there, whatever. Well, the idea here is that cultural externalities are a thing. In Econ 101 class, you learn about economic externalities, the idea that if you dump pollution into a river, it'll flow downstream. And, you know, this is, this is the Coase theorem with Ronald Coase, the great Nobel Prize winning economist. How do you solve for economic externalities? Well, We on the new right are trying to figure out how to solve for cultural externalities. That is where the idea of a more muscular, vigorous approach, the idea that we should consider actually banning things that the past 50, 60 years of right liberalism would tell us that we cannot ban, to rediscover the tradition where blasphemy and obscenity in the early American Republic were banned. New York State prosecuted blasphemy as late as 1808. So, I got a lot of pushback on this on Twitter, but it really did remind me of the conversation that we had with David, because it is a perfect example of the kind of issue that I think a more muscular fighting new right has to be able to grapple with. And yet again, from my perch down here in Florida, I think our governor on this issue with Disney and all that really is kind of leading the way here. But once again, this is the Josh Hammer Show. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time. 